Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Burrell. And today we're pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Death Race 2000. Death Race 2000, rated R. <laughs> or race to the death because we'll see which one of us wants to gouge our eyeballs out first. <laughs> or, um, God, we hope you're high or getting some while this movie plays because that's what it's for. You want people to have sex to this? That sounds like a terrible plan. I posit that teenagers in the 70s were absolutely having sex while this was playing. Whether or not they were watching it is a completely different story. I'm sorry, but any movie you get it onto has to be a little bit sexy. No part of this movie is sexy. There's a, a giant nudity sequence in which a bunch of men and women are getting massages while naked. That's kind of sexy. That would have been sexy for 1974. Okay, so the five minutes, you you know what? You're talking about teenage boys. That's about how long teenage boys last. You know what? Well done. You've argued yourself into a point, sir. Hooray! Hooray! A task. <laughs> but, so in case you missed Death Race 2000, these piece of shit movie is about a race across the desert in which killing the elderly gets you more points. And okay, a few a few just broadenings here. It's not across the desert, it is across the United States and it is a dystopian reimagining of the year 2000 from 1974 in which an Orwellian regime keeps the masses entertained via blood sport. And nothing in this film is half as academic as that sentence I just said. Also, this is 1984 if it was written on a beer-soaked napkin at the Daytona 500. I don't think the Daytona 500 was around in 1948 when George Orwell wrote 1984. Fair. (laughs) But I see your point. Because this movie made sure that Hunger Games and Battle Royale and The Purge could all exist. Because without those, it couldn't have. I Yeah, and especially The Purge is the one that like I, I zoom in on. Because this is, this is like a low-level grindhouse kind of film. The mm-hmm. point is, you go to watch people hit each other with cars and blow up and get stabbed. Much like you go see a Purge movie because you're in it for the murder porn? Oh, I'm definitely into it for the political commentary. The Purges are fascinating. Have we not talked about this? We super have not. All right, we'll pin in that. That's a conversation we need to have later. Absolutely. (laughs) But no, truly, because there is... So the reason I say The Purge is there's a scene where... And this sets up the storytelling really well Well, the elderly are worth more points and Mm -hmm. so a hospital that i think especially specializes in geriatrics lines up all of their geriatric patients and as david carradine our main character frankenstein is driving with his navigator annie annie says oh it's geriatric day or it's euthanasia day rather yep And this is the day that they all get lined up. And so they're just out there like, 
hey, we're an easy kill, we're for points. And I'm like, oh, this is some purge shit right here. Uh, absolutely, especially because like, I don't know what direction the elderly actors were given, but they look like they just are like, oh, hum. oh yeah, that car's coming rather quickly. This is gonna be interesting. Like there is not a shred of like mortal fear. No, nah, dude, they're hopped up on morphine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for us. And and so like yeah, so this film has a like a strong undercurrent of political satirical commentary. And the most interesting thing for me is trying to figure out whether or not it was intentional mm-hmm. or whether or not it was just well, the movie's got to be about something. I feel this is a bit on the nose for it not to be intentional. We have a hammer, hammer and sickle flag. Which, yeah, you say hammer and sickle evoking the USSR. I say that the uh, imagined American flag in Death Race 2000 is super fascist. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the hammer and sickle are in the shape of a swastika. Mm. Like the way that they're pointing looks like a... Right. Um, cause that's how you say swastika and Stephanie. You're just a murp, 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 murp. But also we have a Pope, a Nixon president knockoff, a clearly coded as bisexual woman, Nazi shit, and just all of this that's thrown in in the first 10 minutes. I think they're trying to make a point. I, I you know, and I, I, I suspect that you're correct. Um, and so this, this, this is the part where I talk about the creative team cause it's, it's in talking about the creative team that like maybe people will understand why I'm kind of on the fence. This was written by a guy named Ib Melchior, who's a Danish American novelist who wrote a bunch of movie scripts like The Angry Red Planet, Reptilicus, Journey to the Seventh Planet, a bunch of drive-in like sci-fi movie stuff. It was directed by a guy named Paul Bartell, who has such titles as Eat My Dust, Hollywood Boulevard, Amazon Women of the Moon, and Rock and Roll High School. Again, a lot of Mystery Science Theater, a lot of Grindhouse, and most uh, top of mind of them all is this was produced by the legendary Roger Corman, who is legendary not for making good films, but for sure making a lot of them. (laughs) Okay, this is the point where I have been trying to make a point, and you take us a wild left turn and talk about the people's Hollywood career. So why don't you tell me about David Corman? Like most of our episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Roger Corman. David Corman, Roger Corman, same person. No, you get Roger Corman's name right. Oh, okay. This this man is has touched all of our lives in the filmmaking sense. In I don't one want way him to another. touch any part of anything after watching this. Fair. Okay. So just just to expound on it a little bit, Roger Corman is like one of the most beloved by the industry producers in all of American cinema. Mm-hmm. And as I've stated, it's not because his films are particularly good. It's it's a lot of drive-in. It's a lot of like stuff that you would see on Mystery Science Fiction Theater 3000. Um, but he is beloved because he is one of the founding fathers of American independent film. 
This guy started his career around 1950 uh, working for 20th Century Fox as a mail clerk, which opened the door for him to start writing scripts, which he sold his first script in 1954. And that quickly snowballed his career, breaking out of the studio system and pioneering drive-in filmmaking. Which is a whole moment. Like, I don't... Everyone kind of looks back with really romanticized glasses at the 50s and at the studio system. And then, like, people forget how the 60s, 70s, into, like, the very early 80s was, like, the drive-in, the grindhouse, the indie film. Um, As of 2008, Corman has been credited with producing 384 films and... This is probably the most important part. Uh, mentoring and helping start the careers of Francis Ford Coppola, James Cameron, Joe Dante, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, and Sylvester Stallone to bring it back to Death Race 2000. Sure. Here he comes, Machine Gun Joe, loved by thousands, hated by millions. And I recognize and understand your point, too, about the importance of drive-in movies on American culture, because that's like a touchstone of our culture and a touchstone of our moment in time. And so to connect David, Daniel, Roger, sure, Corman, it was it was going to be your husband's middle name, Roger. No, it's going to be his first name. Oh, OK. Yeah. His mom was so obsessed with Roger or somebody or the. Names are clearly not my high point. You need to know this by now. But I think that's so essential to who he is as a person because obviously he's someone who recognizes greatness in someone and brings it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. So now, granted, that entire list was white dudes, but yes. what was Hollywood in the 70s anyway? Very fair and salient point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I even as I was writing it, I was like, white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy. Um, but yes, just all of that to say, Roger Corman is kind of like the great grandfather of modern American cinema. Because at least three out of the names I listed as people who got their start working for him have gone on to be like the great titans of filmmaking, as it were. Yeah, Rocky. Like, that's a name that people recognize in other countries. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen Rocky V. And you're like, what? Okay, that's a really specific time point, but sure. (laughs) Rocky, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now. This This just spirals into this great web of names. But all of that said, goddamn, this is the worst movie we've seen in a minute. It's bad. And to pass the baton back, super fashy. Super fashy. Super, super. There's this whole thing about how um, the president, like, talks about how he's created the sport for Americans because he loves them. Right. And he's truly bringing them happiness. There's a throwaway line about how, like, he's got a summer home in China, leading to, like, the unsaid implication that the United States has taken over vast swaths of Asia. Which I thought was going to lead into this thing of, like, oh, the president is dead and always has been. And he's always 
at his summer home in China. Oh, clever, clever. Just like how in 1984, they're always at war with with random Asia, but you never actually hear anything other than we're at war. Um, so when the president showed up, I was kind of shocked and surprised. And, okay, so... Where I said I was on the fence was you have all of these creative types who like, yeah, we check out three movies in a month and none of them are good, but all of them play on a Tuesday for teenagers to make out to. And that's how we make our money. We don't care. But this one, it it does really seem like there's enough evidence that they were trying to make a political satirical point. Mr. President, who never gets a name, he is just Mr. President is a, like you said, a pretty obvious Nixon stand-in. Yeah. Second movie in a row where we've had a president based on Nixon. hmm <laughs> And I also feel like there's this whole, there's a whole talking point around um, there's a rebellion that there, that a whole group of people in the movie are using the death race for. So Annie is actually the granddaughter of Wilhelmina. Thomasina Payne. Thomasina Payne. Because Thomas Payne is the only reason I remember that. <laughs> so Thomasina and her people are, you know, spearheading this rebellion. Come to find out that Frankenstein the entire time must win because he has to shake the president's hand. And the reason he has to shake the president's hand is so he can kill the president because his hand is a grenade. Yep. Literally, his hand is a grenade. And they reveal that, like, when there's 10 minutes left in the movie and he pulls off his glove and he has a robot hand with a grenade, like, taped to it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's a grenade hand, all right. So during the scene where he and Annie are... (laughs) Well, he leaves the glove on the entire movie. That's like the thing. When he's walking around shirtless and and not but in his skivvies, he's still wearing a single black glove. That's right. We commented on it and we made a Michael Jackson comment, but I didn't notice even in the Nike scene. Mm. So that's awkward right that's the point where you stop and you're like hey can i know what's going on with your hand because that's the point i stop and go what's going on bud right and in a film where characters are written with enough intellectual and emotional depth annie probably does but in this film where even like annie is probably like our protagonist hero Mm -hmm. I'll, i'll i'll ask you a question about that more later but like even annie who is at worst our secondary protagonist Mm -hmm. is still just like kind of a paper thin cardboard character who does sex with the hero because is sex yes good so like princess buttercup (laughs) oh shit If this is the point where you, you, you like come back and make your point about Princess Buttercup for Death Race 2000, I'm going to be sad. Princess Buttercup, Annie, they go to Carl's Jr., they eat it, and they don't even register how good it is because they're such mindless, pointless characters. Oh. They don't even recognize how good the Carl's Jr. is. They're just eating the burger. Now... I want this commercial. Okay. But now I'm also just thinking about Wesley in the death race. (laughs) 
and how he would be better than everyone else. He would obviously win the death race, yeah. and he would somehow do it without killing anyone. And he, and he'd be on a motorcycle. And he'd be on a motorcycle. Yeah. Oh, I love that! Yay. Well, um, I wasn't really going to talk about this. Apparently, Death Race has like four sequels. Death Race Two came oh. out in 2017. Wait, what? Oh yeah, no, like like there are like four Death Race films and three of them are less than five years old because the sci-fi channel exists. But now sure. I want Death Race 5 to be the Revenge of the Dread Pirate Roberts. Oh, perfect. Because that's how you get asses in seats. That is how you get asses in seats. Another way you get asses in seats is nudity, but <laughs> Tubi TV decided we didn't get that and it blurred all of the nudity out. Tubi TV censored this friggin' film! <laughs> I was shocked! Why would you censor? Why would you waste the time and talent censoring this? I mean, like the real answer is so Two B TV could buy the rights to this film for like fifty dollars because that's kind of what they do is buy the rights to garbage films. But like, nobody is turning on Death Race two thousand and going. Well, I only want to see the race kill part. I really don't care about the nudity. Like, nobody is that specific. And if there is somebody that specific, I'm frightened of them. <laughs> I thought you were going to switch it the other way and say, oh, I only want to watch Death Race 2000 for the titties. And I was like, you just made that entire point about how it's a makeout film, my dude. Right, indeed. And I, you know what helps make out is titties. <laughs> but like... Side note, this really kind of helps um, set the layup for the argument that the American society is completely backwards in that completely backwards in that it'll censor nudity but show horrendous gore. Like this this joins such classics as the Toxic Avenger, um, mm. where there's a head explosion scene. Mm -hmm. where a, a melon gets run over and they say it's a head. There's multiple car bombings. One part of this that I legitimately had no problem with is the very first kill of the movie is a giant phallic bowie knife strapped to the front of a car, kills a man by driving through his crotch. So you have the knife like come out like a penis I mean, you hope you die at that point, right? You hope you die, but it is a long, slow, agonizing death. My point is all of that, like, yeah, who cares? Cover up the titties. <laughs> it's just inconsistent. <laughs> well, also inconsistent is the fact that we have hotel ballrooms masquerading as bedrooms. That was the funniest thing. Like, we both, like had to pause the movie and like lose it a little bit because very clearly it is like some some Stanley Kubrick sci-fi bullshit. It is like some clockwork orange set design where their fancy private hotel suite between Frankenstein and Annie is very clearly like the Sacramento Convention Center ballroom. They didn't even put up the air walls. They just stuck a bed, a single bed with like a chair and a lamp and said, yeah, it's the future. That's what bedrooms look like. It's straight up Lynchian. It's very creepy. But I think I, the reason I bring this up is that there's like 
no concept of sexual tension, like all of a sudden it just ramps up. I disagree. When it ramps up, it gets very sexually violent, but in, not in like a, a not in a good way. Not, not not in a. How am I trying to say this? How are you trying to say this, friend? Not in a like horrifying way. Not in a good way, but not in like the worst way that when you hear the word sexual violence, your mind goes to a certain thing. But it's very Frankenstein gets very like Dom Daddy and is very like grabbing Annie by the throat and is like, listen, you're gonna I don't know, make love to me now. And she's like, gosh, I sure am. <laughs> I think that's a little bit the point I was trying to make, though, is that there's this implied owing of sex. Mm. Maybe sexual, maybe a lack of sexual attention is not the right phrasing. Maybe it's more like lack of sexual agency because the whole yes point. And I'm not saying she. I'm not saying Annie is raped, but I'm saying like when navigators are introduced, it's very purposefully in the way that people were in the 80s it's very purposely people of the opposite sex right are their navigators and there's this implication that the navigators are like they help you make the kill they read the maps and they take care of whatever else you need wink wink nudge nudge yeah and i think it's even explicitly stated that like Frankenstein's former navigator before she got killed was his lover. So, like, from the word go, there's this connection of, like, yeah, this is part of what being a navigator's like. You get, I don't know, part of the prize money. You you assume they're mostly willing relationships. Well, I think Annie has a line that illustrates it really well when she says... He says, oh, well, no one's ever seen my real face. And she goes, right, except for your prior navigators. Right. Kind of implying, oh, everyone else you've driven with has seen you naked. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and in the love scenes, because there's two, there's a couple of them, it is just, from the word go, it is just very assuming, like, yeah, there's only one bed in here for a reason. And it's it's not because we're trying to write a fan fiction where, and there was only one bed, <laughs> and they were roommates. Oh, they were roommates. No, it's because you are going to sleep with me, David Carradine, now. What is that? Euthanasia Day at the geriatrics hospital. They do it every year. <laughs> Isn't the most attractive looking man to the whole thing that he's Frankenstein and he pulls off his mask and he doesn't look ugly? It's like, yeah. Yeah? He looks normal? Yes, but so here's the other thing about that. Talked about Roger Corman, talked about how these are... Billy Corman, yeah. Jesus. Talked about how these are very much not taking themselves seriously. These are micro-budget films. These are nobody who is a, a big-name star at the time works on these. Mm-hmm. One of the few exceptions is... In this film, we have a post-Kung Fu David Carradine. So at the time, he is like a name in American society that like you watch his TV show on Saturday night where he fights Bruce Lee. And oh my God, it's David Carradine, which is a whole other thing. 
but the point is like the other this movie's famous because it's like oh it's david carradine and sylvester stallone this was a pre-discovery sylvester stallone this was a pre-rocky wasn't going to come out for another year sylvester stallone so i think the logic is since david carradine is a recognizable to a real life audience figure that is supposed to like make up for any conventional attractiveness of the actor. Okay. Okay. It's like having Jeremy Renner in a movie. You're like, yeah, Yeah. you're fine. (laughs) You know what? Yeah, that is, that is absolutely the comparable I would make. (laughs) You're a terrible person, but you'll do. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know if David Carradine's a terrible person beyond how you feel about autoerotic asphyxiation, but... Oh, no, is that how he... Oh, that's how he died. Wait, what? Yeah, that was, like, a thing. Oh, this movie just got very more interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's what got it there for you. Well, I'm just saying you know there are fans who um, <clears throat> put this on an attempt. Oh, God. I hope not. Can't think of anybody being that much of a fan of this film as to... Oh, no, I meant David Carradine fans. Oh. Eh. Most of them are really old at this point. <laughs> like, the other thing David Carradine is most known for is being Bill in the titular... Being the titular Bill in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movies. Okay. That's the only other thing, like, most people would even know him for. So, I don't think there's going to be a resurgence in the David Carradine fan club. <laughs> unless this episode does really well. Which I really hope it doesn't. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I hope all our episodes do well. Um, you, you were mentioning something that got me wanting to talk about. The entire rest of the world in this like film. Specifically, all of the... Uh, race commentators. Oh yeah, because they are such a vibe. They are. They are the where I drew the line for Hunger Games because yeah. it's very Stanley Tucci and Hunger Games turning around in his chair and wild smile across his entire face. Right. Absolutely. You've got the younger one, Junior Bruce, who very coded gay. Very coded gay. Which makes the way he is the final person to die in the film a little weird. He's also clearly the most bloodthirsty person in the movie, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, you've got you've got Junior Bruce. You've got um, the the one woman announcer who like literally every person who comes up in the film is oh my good friend, my good friend Grace. My good friend Grace. There we go. Grace. Yes. Because I had to look her up. I'm like, because who is this crazy lady who is calling everyone Brent? And then I was like, oh, you know who she is. You know who she represents. She's like Joan Rivers. Oh, you're right. She's, oh my God, honey, let me talk to you. That is a beautiful yes. dress. That is a gorgeous dress. And of course I know that your husband like knows everything about their lives. Right. Absolutely. She is like the, like... I'm writing a column for Vogue about the blood sport mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right, right. Okay, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then third and final, my favorite. I don't even remember his name, but it's the guy who's basically Howard Cozell. Sure. I'll trust you. Howard Cozell being the famous real-life sports announcer who, like, 
was a I think he got to start as a boxing announcer and was like just very beloved and he's the guy who had a very particular way of talking like this sure I'll trust you all right <laughs> I I very much like the Hunger Games comparison there because they are adding like the ironically they're the ones adding color to the mm-hmm. film when everyone else is literally a wacky racist character mm-hmm. they're kind of the ones doing a lot of the heavy lifting besides the actual car drivey go vroom scenes <laughs> well i think they're the ones who are like like the hunger games commentators or like any commentator it's like oh yes this person is speaking for what I'm supposed to recognize right. about the sport. And so they're the people that you invite into your home. And yeah, you can have someone you cheer for, but you also have someone who's narrating the entire time that you're like, oh yeah, see, you're right. Like we watch Bake Off and I bake somewhat, you bake even less than that. And we're like, oh, he did the crust wrong. It's going to yeah. lead to a soggy bottom, and that's yep. a problem. Oh, and Paul's telling him you did the crust wrong. We called it. Yeah, we called you're it. Right. We totally knew. You're totally right. <laughs> um, they're also the ones in the film who really push the narrative of like the government is just kind of making things up as they go along, and it becomes really clear that this is not a like fair race for anything as much as it is a government sponsored like put it on so the sheep stay quiet. Oh, like the Olympics. Like the Olympics, yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad that we talked about that. (laughs) Um, But there's like, when I, um, I think when it's the resistance kills Nero the hero. The deacon politician guy who kind of looks like a pope. No, no, he's the, um, he's the Hercules racer guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who is the first one to get his car exploded. Yes. They, like, make a big thing of, like, first they're talking about it because it's breaking news, and then somebody whispers in somebody else's ear and is like, oh, uh, never mind, he's still in fourth place. Because mm. they want to control the narrative oh. enough to, like, not let the masses know that there is this resistance trying to undermine them. Mm. I thought you were talking about when they kill the deacon guy. That part too. That part too, because yeah. they kill the deacon and everyone's like, uh Can we do that? Are Can you, are you allowed? Are you allowed are you allowed to do that? I don't know. And like 30 seconds later, Junior Bruce is like, Deacons are worth 50 points. It's been announced that I think it's even like commentators are in the race, and he like makes a joke at his side front. He's like, better right. watch out. Right, yeah, because they make this thing of like, ah, shit, well, Frankenstein's supposed to be the one who wins, and Frankenstein just killed a race official, so I, I, I guess I guess we're letting him kill race officials. Who gives a shit? Like, I guess that's fine. Cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the three race officials who matter are kept nowhere near the race in a safe bubble. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... So I was heartbroken to learn this because I even mentioned it um, as the lead in on the last episode. Gun to my head, if you would have told me which came first, Death Race 2000 or the beloved Hanna-Barbera cartoon Wacky Races featuring Penelope Pitstop and Dirk Dastardly, I would have said 
Death Race 2000 had to have come first. It so clearly is the thing that inspired the cartoon. Not true. And now, here they are. The most daredevil group of daddy drivers to ever whirl their wheels in the wacky races. Competing for the title of the world's wackiest racer. Oh, no. The cartoon is seven years older than this film. Oh, no. Which now leads to the world in which... Ed Melchior is like watching Saturday morning cartoons with his son and Wacky Races comes on and he's like, he looks at that and then he looks at his copy of the Communist Manifesto and then he looks back at the cartoons and he's like, I've got an idea for a book. I can do this. (laughs) Oh, that's deeply disturbing. He's like, hold on, we have to watch every episode of this. What time does this air? 8 a.m. Okay, well, that's going to cut into my 8 a.m. meeting. But all right, I'll do I'll do it. I need all the inspiration I can get. It's also 1974, and streaming is not going to be a thing for 40 years. So <laughs> oh, let's <right>. buckle up. <laughs> um, speaking of let's buckle up, which is very on par for this movie about cars. Well done. Uh, Myra and Joe. So that's mm-hmm. uh, Sylvester Stallone and the woman who plays his navigator, whose name I do not have. Um, they have serious Joker and Harley energy. They do, except Machine Gun Joe isn't even funny for a second. No, oh, he's so cringy. Yeah. He's so cringy. But I, I see what you're saying. I think the biggest thing is, like, Myra has very strong Harley Quinn energy mm-hmm. as, like, the beleaguered and physically assaulted sidekick who just kind of rolls with the punches, literally, mm-hmm. and just follows along with whatever her driver slash man has to say about a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and she's also got that really high-pitched voice. And I can really help you out. I really think we should take a left here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, so. yeah. Just add Mr. J to, like, half of her lines, and it totally, totally works. Ooh. Interesting development for our next uh, Dread Pirate Roberts return Death Race 2000. Oh, my God. The Dread Pirate Roberts versus Harley and the Joker. Like, this is a license to print money. (laughs) (laughs) All the nostalgia. All of it. aging Carrie Elways and Margot Robbie. Who's saying no? Not me. (laughs) Yeah, right? Not me. That sounds great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Machine Gun Joe's a whole thing. The character sucks the character is one of those like 90 percent of the characters in this film are cardboard cutouts and machine gun joe's whole thing is like you're angry you're the second place you're the perennial second place and like you make dumb decisions because you get angry and then you get even angrier because you made a dumb decision and again this is a pre-rocky sylvester stallone i don't even necessarily like sylvester stallone that much but the man has had like an extensive career as one of the top Hollywood action stars of his era. And this is before the start of it. Presumably this is a Sylvester Stallone who is acting his ass off desperately trying to break it into Hollywood so that he doesn't have to keep doing softcore pornography. Is that a thing? That's a thing. Oh, I want to rewind time to before I knew that. Listeners, you if you really search it out, you can find the Sylvester Stallone porno. I've heard it's not worth it. 
You've heard it's not worth it. Oh, I'm not looking at the Sylvester Stallone porno. No way. Mm, he thinks the gentleman protest too much. <laughs> Listen, I could just watch the scene where he's very messily eating clam sauce and has a whole bunch of white goop around his face and basically go, oh, okay, it's probably like that. But then he like shoves it at someone yeah. else too. He like throws a handful of cream sauce at somebody. <gasps> so gross. And so then he breaks a violin, this. if I remember right. He punches, yes, he punches a violin. Yeah. Um, do we have anything else to say about this movie oh it passes the bechdel test and that's annoying it sure does it passes the bechdel test and yet i think it it is very (laughs) anti-woman well so we have a young woman fan who kills herself on purpose because she's so in love with frankenstein that she's like i have to be the one to give you points yep yep we have women literally being used for sex we have uh, the the chief Nazi character is Matilda the Hun. Sure. Let's just throw that on. Well, that one's fun just because Matilda the Hun's co-pilot is this very nebbish brunette man with glasses. And it's so, it, you know, I, I do think that if nothing else, that was like a very tongue-in-cheek bit of political commentary of, like, let's get the least Aryan-looking person and then, like, say that that person's a hardcore Nazi (laughs) and then make him blow up later. Yeah, that's fair. But, yes, Calamity Jane, who is our other, like, female racer and who is, like, the third build character in the movie, Mm -hmm. um, has a scene where she tells Matilda the Hun, good luck. And therefore, this movie passes the Bechdel test. Well, not just Matilda the Hun. She also says it to Annie. Mm, Right. So she says it to Annie first. And Annie's like, wow, thanks. And they actually have like a nice moment. Not like, oh, my God, so sweet. Write home about it. But nice. And then she goes to say it to Matilda the Hun. And Matilda the Hun is like super rude. And she's like, all right, well, fuck you. Okay. I tried to be a better person. Fair enough. Indeed. Um, that makes me think of how, like, so this is a bad movie with, like, just a a, a sprinkle of salt of good moments in it. Mm-hmm. One of those good moments, I think, is Calamity Jane's death scene <laughs> where she, like, gets run off the road by resistance people and manages to, like, kill them all, but then is, like, doing a K-turn around a landmine and it's actually like a perfect little moment of tension where like you see the mine you see the car from the perspective of the mine like oh my god it's gonna hit oh no okay it just missed it and okay oh but she's gotta make a k-turn oh okay and finally she runs over a landmine and it's all for naught and she explodes and i liked that moment of the film well, because it's that nice buildup of tension and release and tension and release. And not a whole lot else in this movie had good pacing. Right. So it was like, oh, yeah, we have some good pace. It would have been nice to have that for the rest of the film. Like the 10-minute reveal where we have someone have a hand grenade hand. Yeah. And then that guy gets not able to use his hand grenade hand, so we have to replace him with dun-dun-dun, the girl. The girl, dressed as Frankenstein, 
who then is going to stab the president, but then get shot by her own grandmother because her own grandmother doesn't know that it's her, thinks it's Frankenstein. And so, oh my God, oh no, she's been shot. And now Frankenstein, the true hero of the film, has to kamikaze the, the stand where the president is to kill him and become the actual hero of the film. Right, because at the end of the day, men are so helpful. Men are so helpful. And and this is the thing I, was, I, I did actually want to talk about. The entire film, this was a genuine point of confusion for me. So we've got David Carradine. We've got the only actor, anybody who was watching this movie when it comes out knows who that actor is. And the language of the film the entire time is like, yeah, of course, he's the hero. He's who you're rooting for. He's who you want to see succeed. He is the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But he's such a dick. 90% of this film until the final like twist grand reveal that he's also trying to do the quote unquote good thing. And it was, it, it honestly was so jarring for me that like the film is trying to tell me root for this guy when the script is very much telling me don't root for this guy. He's a dick. And I'm just like, who am I supposed to root for? Am I supposed to root for machine gun Joe? Cause he's a dick too. Am I supposed to root for Annie? She's a woman in a 70s, like, grindhouse film. She's not a real character. She's either going to die or just be a sex character. Yeah, so I I thought that was a very strange bit of it. The ending itself is just very strange because, like we said, there's, there's the whole hullabaloo. And then the last 30 seconds of the film are David Carradine and Annie. And they're married now. And they're happy. And the sun's shining. And David Carradine's the new president. Because I guess this is the kind of you keep what you kill kind of scenario. It's like the real Santa Claus. Yeah, absolutely. Wherein it's Santa Claus rules of if you kill Santa Claus, you're Santa Claus now. If you kill the president, you get to be the president. Exactly. Although I will say, I think there is a line where they ask him what he's up to next now that he's president. And he's like, you'll have to ask her. And he like looks at Annie and Annie's like, we'll see. And then like you hear the drum roll play. But I'm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Speaking of drum rolls, the soundtrack is on LSD. Oh, it was so... There was one point where it just started playing trumpets and we were like, what the hell? Where did that come from? It just starts playing trumpets. It goes from like light metal to polka in the middle of a car chase sequence without changing a beat. Like, this was very much just Roger Corman going through like a free sample catalog of like score music and playing every track for the 30 seconds that he got it for. Oh, that's such a Robert Corman move. This is a death race. You finish first or not at all. Death race 2000. Uh, Also a Robert Corman move, I assume the car chase sequences are legitimately dope as hell. Oh yeah. Very good. I will say like, okay, I, I get I know I made the point of no one's watching this for just the car chase sequences and and wants the nudity turned off. They're not going to like object to boobs. But people are turning this movie on for the extremely fast car chase sequences, which are objectively cool. And I think the stunt department of this film does like deserve genuine recognition for what they accomplish because that shit goes fast. 
Well, is that your Oscar then? That is not my Oscar, but I am happy to tell you my Oscar. Please tell me your Oscar. I will, because here on Cult Fiction, we heartily believe that every film, even garbage tire fires from the likes of Roger Corman, deserve at least a couple of Oscars. And speaking of Roger Corman, my Oscar for Death Race 2000 is longest film career to the Roger Corman. I talked about it ad nauseum, how this man, like, started making movies in 1954. What I didn't mention is how at the age of 96, Roger Corman is still producing movies. Granted, it's being executive producer to sci-fi channel hits like Sharktopus versus Whalewolf. Sharktopus versus what? Whalewolf. 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 It's a wolf, but it's also a whale, just like how it's a shark, but it's also an octopus. Well, as long as it's not also a shark and a tornado. Right. That would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. Um, but, you know, it's never been about quality for Corman. It's always just about quantity and what can I make out of nothing? But I think it just needs recognition that this man has been making films for 66 years straight is nearly a hundred and like will only stop when he's dead good for roger good for roger i can tell you're you mean that because you used his real name i used his real name and what is your oscar my oscar is actually for best glow up when it comes to cars okay because the cars in this movie built for the movie fine awesome very cool you said this the stunt department did a very great job Absolutely agree. Then these cars went on to go on for auction. Okay. And yeah, of course, like, um, Dorothy's ruby slippers sold for like $350 billion or whatever. But these cars made so much money, they tripled their worth in auction individually. So, like... People were buying the Death Race 2000 cars and actually getting into bidding wars over them. And I find that just fantastic. That is equal parts fantastic and infuriating because you have too much money if that's what you're doing. Or you're a really big David Carradine fan. You're going to buy one of these cars <laughs> and then you're going to play Death Race 2000 and going to try to auto-asphyxiate, eradicate yourself. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, you're, you're gonna, oh god, that, I, I could say a dark joke and I'm not gonna right now. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do oh, it. Oh, you could tie a belt around your neck and tie the other end around one of the, like, doors of the car and have your friend drive the car really slowly while you get dragged along and jack off. Oh, see, I thought you were going to make the um, Midsummer reference and say, oh, yeah, you could do that while, while breathing in the fumes of the car and just die in the garage. I think it has to be your, you have something around your neck for it to be autoerotic asphyxiation. I don't think you can just be inhaling fumes. So, like, both, though. Yeah. This is the darkest segment we've ever done on cult fiction. Ever. Ever. So, you know what? Let's bring it back to the light. Indeed. Is this cult? Yes, I think so. I mean, this this made ten times its budget. The, the, uh, ten times its budget? Yes, because its budget was like 
$580,000, which oh. <laughs> is tiny for film. Sure. And made a cool $5 million in 1970s money. Oh, nice. So, like, that was that was the thing. That was the point. This is not a good movie. And yet, this is one of the better Roger Corman movies. It's never about making a good movie. It's about making you a shit ton of money for what you put in. Okay. But that doesn't make it cold. No, well, no, but that's part of it. I mean, it, you know, it, it meets the financial obligation for what I consider cult to be. Or wait, no, it doesn't. Yeah, oh, it shit. doesn't. You're doing it backwards. I am doing it backwards. You're doing it wrong. Welp. Welp. It is still quotable. It is still, like, it, it's it's a vibe. It It is a vibe. It is very much a vibe. It's very much something like all of... Our millennial generation's fathers watched this when they were teenagers and thought it was the coolest shit ever. Um, I'm trying to remember what you were saying about the... You compared this to a different movie visually. Oh, in the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, you were saying, like, why does this look like it belong in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And that's probably because of, like, the film stock they were using is just the best they had at the time. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, not even me, I don't particularly like this movie. I don't think it was particularly good. A lot of people love this film and are happy to talk about it, are happy to talk about how amazing David Carradine is. It is quotable, I, I think. Well, sure, we have lines like, if this doesn't, anyone who's unhappy with happiness can live somewhere else. Well, we also have lines like when they're about to start having sex, Annie says, the Swiss mechanic sure did a number on your hand. What else did they work on? Unzips his pants. Like, that's okay. All right. I see you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very quotable. Very quotable. I, I A lot of people think cult. And, and this is one of those times where it's like, cult does not equal good. No. Oh, wait. Oh, my God. I only just realized mm-hmm. Martin Covey, who yeah. plays Nero the hero, yeah. is returning to cult fiction because what? he was the evil dojo sensei in Karate Kid. No, he was not. He sure was. I only caught that because I'm staring at his IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, if we're going to segue using Martin Covey... He is my first move of bacon. Oh, is he? Yes, Oh, he I didn't is. even know that. Okay, well, um, something, something, you know who else drives a car really great? <laughs> Martin Cope. No, Kevin Bacon! bacon. <laughs> bacon. <laughs> yes, Kevin Bacon does drive a car really great, I suppose. So, so, how did you connect this film with Martin with Martin Covey, apparently? Well, Martin Covey was in Blood Tide with Mary Louise Weller, who was in Animal House with Kevin Bacon. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not mad about it. I'm always happy to remember Animal House exists. Mm-hmm. I've got one that I'm very surprised was not your Oscar. Okay. Sylvester Stallone, well known for his action film Cliffhanger. In which the bad guy is one John Lithgow, which I remember because it's such a weird-ass thing that John Lithgow is the bad guy in a Sylvester Stallone movie. Mm -hmm. John Lithgow was, of course, 
also the bad guy in a little film called Footloose. Oh. Starring the inevitable Kevin Bacon. Oh. So because I actually used Footloose, like the music we play, (laughs) I think I get this one. (laughs) You know what? I'm feeling, you know, benevolent. I think you can. Oh, well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Let's find out if the crypt is feeling benevolent. Yes, let's. Because every episode of Cult Fiction, when it's time to pick our next movie, we put our hands into fate and the Hollywood crypt through the application of a random number generator and our list of cult films. Uh, In the crypt, we have 281 cult films. And it looks like next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching number 109. Number 109. Oh, returning to Cult Fiction. Beloved director of my heart, Jeremy Salyanay, who is, of course, uh, everyone will remember the director of Green Room. We're going to be watching his other major film, which actually came out first. Blue Bruin. Does this guy have a thing with colors? I, you know, these are the only two movies in which he's put a color in the name, which I'm actually kind of disappointed by. I wanted a, like, a pigment trilogy of films. Uh Uh-huh. But I don't get it. Womp womp. Well, that's all for this time on Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can you can follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we start a Kickstarter account for the uh, review of this film, which was financed through Kickstarter. See what I did there? That's Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, as we take in Jeremy Salyanay's Blue Ruin. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. Alright. Well, it'll be better than Death Race 2000. It absolutely will be. I've, I've heard the general consensus is this is better than Green Room, and I've been saving it to watch for the first time for this. So...